Okay, our speaker today is Paul Heidebrecht, who is the director of the Center for Peace Advancement at Conrad Grable University College and also an adjunct assistant professor in peace and conflict studies there. Um, he did his bachelor's degree in engineering at University of Waterloo and then a master's in theology at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminaries and a PhD in theological ethics at Marquette University. So he's been on kind of a safari of uh, disciplinary homes. So um, makes for lots of uh, interesting interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary thinking. His research is focused primarily on the promotion of just, peaceful, and inclusive societies. He's used his academic preparation and his professional experience in both engineering and the humanities to help create an emerging field of peace tech, which uh, examines the social impact of technology and also in how to use technology to augment efforts of civil society organizations, social purpose businesses, and governments to advance peace and justice. He's published a number of journal articles uh, at the intersection of, uh, of technology and peace building. Um, and I noticed on his CV or on his web bio that he's also an affiliated faculty with the Waterloo Artificial Intelligence Institute. So if you want to talk to him about chat GPT, uh, you might want to catch him at the, at the reception. Paul, welcome to EMU. We're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Thanks, Fred, for, for the kind introduction. It's really great to be here, um, to have the opportunity in advance to coming, to, to spend some time with you here at Eastern Mount University to, to, to pull together some of my thoughts and reflections related to a rather eclectic professional journey. Um, and it's been, again, it's been a wonderful day. Um, great weather, great to meet folks in the, um, um, in the engineering program here at EMU and to get some more insight and perspective on things on the ground here. And I'm grateful for, again, not only the invitation, but all those who, who played a role in handling logistics and making sure it's been a, it's been a smooth and a good experience. So one of the unanticipated joys of my job at Conrad Grable University College has been having the opportunity to teach peace and conflict studies to engineering students at the University of Waterloo. This is not what I was hired to do, but every fall semester for the past seven years, I spend a sustained amount of time trying to convince engineering students that they can think of themselves, they should think of themselves as peace builders. Another joy has been supporting peace and justice related startups through the Grable Peace Incubator. This is something I was hired to do, although I don't think at the time anyone would have anticipated that about a third of the ventures that have come through that program um, would be peace tech startups, people using technology in some strategic way in order to advance their larger um, impacts. So because of that work I do with the Grable Peace Incubator, I've also spent, spent lots of time every semester helping expand the focus of the University of Waterloo's entrepreneurship ecosystem to embrace a concern for social as well as technological innovation. 
So I'm assuming that this audience is already on board with both of those objectives. That engineers and tech entrepreneurs should care about peace. This is, uh, I think, perhaps something we, we share in common. And so I'm not going to dwell on, on those objectives today. The point of my presentation today is to try and convince you that engineers have something to contribute to a liberal arts university. Um, something to contribute to those of us who find ourselves more at home in fields like peace building and other disciplines in the humanities and the social sciences. Before I get into my argument, I want to give you a little more context about where I'm coming from, recognizing that um, it might be familiar to some of you, but, but, but certainly not to all. Um, so again, my home is, is at Conrad Grable University College, and Conrad Grable is part of the University of Waterloo, a large public institution. And the first thing to stress about Waterloo is that it's a young institution. It was founded as an engineering school in 1957 by local industrialists. However, it now has the largest engineering program in Canada with over 8,500 undergraduate and 2,000 graduate students, over 300 engineering faculty in 15 departments. Other programs were built up um, around engineering over the years, including the establishment of Conrad Grable in 1963. Um, Grable is one of four church-affiliated college communities that also offered academic courses in the liberal arts. This is an aerial photo of a campus in 1968, uh, I believe, and you can see Grable is in the bottom center of the screen. And you can also see lots of farmland. Grable and the other colleges were modest academic additions in comparison to rapidly growing programs at Waterloo in standalone faculties of science, math, health, and environment. Make no mistake, Waterloo was a STEM university before anybody used the term STEM. And one way for you perhaps to imagine um, Grable now is to picture a much smaller EMU on the campus of a much larger JMU. Things have certainly grown up around, around this campus. One novelty of Waterloo's engineering program is that it was structured around a mandatory cooperative education model with alternating school and paid work terms that extended the length of the program by an extra year while providing graduates with two years of relevant work experience. So the lines between education and career preparation have also been blurry since the beginning at, at Waterloo, which now has the largest co-op program in the world. The tight connection between the university and industry is also one reason why so many tech companies have emerged organically out of Waterloo over the decades and why entrepreneurship has risen to prominence more recently. There are lots of metrics trumpeted by Waterloo's marketing machine to celebrate the scale of entrepreneurial activity. But the most striking stat for me is that over the past decade, one in every five tech companies in Canada was founded by a University of Waterloo graduate. One in every five. While Conrad Grable has been swimming against the tide, this tide of a focus on STEM and on the commercialization of technology from the beginning. We have a relatively small student residence and relatively small teaching contributions to Waterloo's Faculty of Arts in the areas of music, peace and conflict studies, religious studies, and Mennonite studies. While Waterloo likes to see itself as a prototype of what are now dominant trends in higher education in North America, Grable faculty have often viewed ourselves 
as outposts of another era. At times, we felt as though the things we focus on belong in the nice-to-do rather than the need-to-do category. Music, religion, and history are frills more than majors. Peace is viewed as a nice ideal, not a career. So I expect many of you in this audience also have rejoinders to this, or nuances to this vision of the changing scene in higher education. I myself am a sympathetic reader of the cottage industry that sprung up to defend the contributions of the humanities and social sciences in recent years, or even more fun to problematize the success of institutions like Waterloo. And in that regard, I would recommend a book, a recent book by Adrian Dobb, a professor at Stanford, called What Tech Calls Thinking. However, the point of this talk, again, is to highlight the positive contributions that a field like engineering can make to the liberal arts. So I'm switching modes today, and I'm going to try and unpack three contributions with you. First, an encounter with engineering can help those in non-technical fields of study move beyond what is typically referred to as a black box approach to technology. Technology is not magic, despite the way many of us if not most of us, tend to encounter it, and the way things work matters for the way things come to shape the world. That's contribution one. Contribution two, an encounter with engineering can help those of us in the social sciences and humanities better appreciate the power of learning through doing. Often disparaged for its practicality by those more accustomed to privileging ideas and theories over action, an engineering sensibility can overcome our inability to achieve change in realms far beyond the technical. And third, recognizing that there's more to education and life than problem solving, an appreciative encounter with engineering can provide fresh insights when brought into conversation with subjects throughout the liberal arts, provided we have a proper understanding of what engineering is. So first, how things work matters. Well, there's lots in retrospect that's prepared me to teach peace and conflict studies to engineering students. I really have to thank Lowell Ewart for opening the door. Lowell served as the director of Grable's PACS program from 1997 to 2020, and his mantra for growing the program was that peace is everyone's business. Peace is everyone's business. In my first year at Grable, Lowell and I developed and co-taught a new introductory course that went by that name. And it seemed to me that if we really wanted to lean into his vision, we should structure the second half of this course around six peace and units, one for each of the six faculties at Waterloo. Now Lowell was all in on peace and the arts, peace and health, peace and environment, and even peace and science, but peace and math or peace and engineering? He was doubtful we'd have enough material to work with for even a class. So fast forward a year, and I was teaching the first offering of Engineering and Peace. And Lowell continued on his journey, too. A few years later, he co-edited co this book with Fred Bird, which included contributions from Waterloo colleagues um, throughout the, um, the faculties, highlighting the fruitfulness of his wide-ranging and ongoing conversations and learning about peace and other disciplines. So while peace um, and engineering has been a great teaching experience, I need to confess that from the outset, it only lived up to half of its promise. Because my ambition was to not only make a compelling case for why peace is the business of engineers, but to enable 
peace builders to grapple with the myriad of challenges and opportunities posed by technology. I thought that the kinds of problems engineers seek to address and the ways they seek to address them should matter to anyone interested in advancing peace in the world. And so just as peace building can make for better engineers, I thought a little dose of engineering could only help peace builders become better peace builders. And yet only the engineering students have tended to show up. At first, this came as a surprise to me, given the prominent role that technology plays in our world, only growing in prominence, and the critical reflections on the impact of technology that we're bombarded with more and more. Indeed, it's a struggle not only to keep up with accelerating technological developments, but to keep up with the, the, uh, the, the deluge of information, the reflections, observations, opinions, and analysis on you pick your tech topic. Yet rather than fostering a deeper sense of curiosity about technology, this attention only seems to reinforce the sense that technology is best treated as if it were an opaque box. All that really matters are the inputs and the outputs. Everything that happens in between, the math and the science and all that other mysterious stuff can be left to the engineers, right? So of course this approach to technology is also ingrained in us by the way that our devices are designed and marketed. Who wouldn't want their experiences with technology to be intuitive, to have the tool, their tools seamlessly integrated with each other, and to see the lag between our commands and expected actions disappear? Don't all our best experiences with technology feel almost magical? So perhaps it's no wonder that most peace and conflict studies students would have a hard time seeing the value about learning about engineering. How things work matters far less to them than the effects of those things. But in my view, this view misses something crucial. I think how our technologies work, and thus by extension, how they are developed, matters enormously. And I think this is true even for advanced technologies like artificial intelligence. Well talked about everywhere you look these days, brought up in conversations here and there, AI is the epitome of an opaque box for most of us. After all, the tremendous power of AI systems is that they are capable of learning, of teaching themselves the most efficient way to make decisions by processing vast amounts of data. And much of the conversation in the media these days focuses on the inherent problems that this introduces. Biases, for example, can be built into the decisions made by AI systems, depending on the nature of the data they have access to. Well, I start my engineering and peace class every week with an interview um, with a guest. And this has come to be a great excuse for me and my students to get to know what I call engineers doing interesting things. Many of these people are Waterloo alumni. Engineers like Sheldon Fernandez, the CEO of a uh, tech startup called Darwin AI. Sheldon certainly fits the bill of an enlightened engineer. In between stints founding tech startups, Sheldon pursued a master's degree in theology and philosophy at the University of Toronto, thanks in no small, small part to a course in New Testament he took at Grable years before. He also participated in the summer creative writing program at Oxford University, completed a professional training program on prevention of mass atrocities from the Montreal Institute of Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Well, anyway, Darwin AI has been an outgrowth of Sheldon's vision and the research of Alex Wong, a University of Waterloo engineering professor and global leader in the field of explainable AI. 
But simply, they are developing technology that reveals how and why AI-driven systems make the decisions they do in order to improve the performance and the trustworthiness of these systems for a wide range of applications. And if you talk to Sheldon, you will quickly learn that it turns out that even AI should not be thought of as an opaque box. But like all technologies, it's something that should demonstrate its value through more than simply the outputs we can easily measure. There are better and worse approaches, better and worse reasons for AI-driven systems to make a decision or take an action. And those designing and procuring this technology should be expected to do more than simply wave their hands and invoke the power of AI to justify its application. So understanding the way AI and other powerful technologies are developed is also rather important for public policy decision makers. One more Waterloo Engineering alum who's underscored this point for me and my students is Ryan Garapi, the co-founder and CTO of a company called ClearPath Robotics. Established in 2009, ClearPath makes robots for educational and industrial applications and has received widespread acclaim over the years. Ryan and his co-founders, for example, were featured in the Business Insider magazine's 40 Under 40, People to Watch in 2015, along with lots of celebrities, in part because this came just after ClearPath rocked the boat in the world of robotics by becoming the first corporate signatory to the international campaign to ban killer robots. Ryan soon found himself providing technical insight to a working group at the United Nations Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons that was grappling with the emerging development of AI-driven weapon systems. And he was shocked. Um, he was shocked at their level of ignorance about what was technically feasible. While he shared the concern of many activists and diplomats, he recognized the importance of making connections with other technical experts, um, groups like the Open Source Robotics Foundation that he's involved in. Ryan was even more shocked by the ignorance about how technology is actually developed and the misplaced assumptions about how it can be regulated that results from this. The fundamental mistake he saw over and over again was the assumption that technological advancements depended on the breakthroughs in theoretical knowledge. Policymakers were locked into what could be called the Manhattan Project paradigm a project where brilliant scientists developed their theories of nuclear physics in laboratories before passing that knowledge along to engineers who could operationalize it. Baked into this paradigm is the idea that governments and universities, those who typically fund and otherwise enable theoretical research, are best positioned to understand and exert control over the direction of cutting-edge technologies. However, this narrative is way out of date since the principal driver of technological innovation is now the private rather than the public sector. As Ryan points out, the capacity for robotics research and industry now dwarfs government and university research labs. And developments within companies like his can be years ahead of the conversation in academic conferences and journals. The speed of technological development in areas like AI and robotics is intrinsically related to the fact that they're driven not only by big tech companies, but by a plethora of tech startups who are in a race to operationalize and commercialize advancements faster and faster. This way of working may be incredibly effective, but it also squeezes out opportunities for reflection and discernment. 
over issues that may be of concern to a broader range of stakeholders. And even more significantly, it also bypasses levers of control that governments have been able to exert on the development of technology in the past. So once again, what I'm trying to point out here is that knowing how technologies actually work and how they're actually developed should matter for all of, those of, uh, for all of us who are concerned about the impact those technologies might come to have. And that's why I'm convinced that we all have something to gain from getting to know engineers and absorbing some of their impulse to open up the opaque boxes in our world. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that we all need to learn calculus or how to code. But just as we think that engineers should take courses in the social sciences and humanities, maybe some exposure to engineering design wouldn't be such a bad idea for prospective peace builders or teachers or even pastors. I'm building here on the argument that Neil Postman first made in his prophetic book, The End of Education. Postman wrote, educators confuse the teaching of how to use technology with technology education. Technology may have entered the schools, but not technology education. I agree with Postman that it's a problem that so many citizens of our technological society are oblivious to the way things work, to the history, to the people who are involved in the development of these, of these technologies. But I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that I have gotten to know some exceptions to the general rule that peace builders at Waterloo don't seem very interested in the ins and outs of technology. Branka Marwan is a senior researcher at Project Plowshares, an NGO uh, leading peace and disarmament organization based in the Center for Peace Advancement at Grable. Um, and she actually did go to the effort of learning some basic coding at the same time that she was starting to play a leadership role in Canadian civil, so civil society um, efforts to regulate emerging technologies of warfare. Bronke even figured out how to fly a drone before giving a talk to tech sector leaders about the perils of killer robots. She's curious and interested. Cassie Myers demonstrated a similar curiosity as a peace and conflict studies student. Cassie founded a startup in Grable's Peace Incubator that helps organizations augment their efforts to grow diversity, equity, and inclusion through analytical software tools. And she also needed to recruit and work with a team of programmers to develop these tools. All right, contribution two. We could all use more gumption. Not sure about that word choice, but bear with me. <laughs> I expect it might sound odd to hear me advocating for non-technical people to get under the hood of technology, so to speak, given that my primary concern with engineers is to get out from under the hood. One of the main learning outcomes from my engineering and peace course for engineering students is that they'll learn to draw boundary diagrams around problems in a more expansive way, taking into account social, cultural, and political factors much bigger than the specific technologies they're designing. Because clearly the problems that really matter in our world do not just have technical fixes alone. Having said this, I think that a engineering, an engineering approach to solving problems does have something important to offer to other disciplines. And in my engineering and peace class, we spend much of the term trying to unpack the essence of this sensibility, both what it is and what it should be. And in my experience, one key aspect of that sensibility that non-engineers often find jarring is the bias for action among engineers and their assumption that learning is best done through doing. While I push my engineering students to understand the importance of reflection and contemplation, we all know the problem, I'm sure, with the mantra, the old mantra of Facebook to move fast and break things, 
I think those of us in the humanities and social sciences would do well to absorb some of the spirited initiative and resourcefulness of engineering. There's a can-do spirit, a conviction that we should try and see if that works before passing judgment. And the assumption that, of course, it's going to take lots of revisions before we get it right. I try to reflect and probe this engineering sensibility through weekly in-class assignments in which students participate in active learning exercises like a crash course in design thinking, um, using uh, modeling software to analyze conflicts, or running an Engineers Without Borders case competition. Students are forced to start before they have mastered a new tool and before they have all the information they think they need in order to proceed. And if this sounds like it might be uncomfortable, it can be. But, and this is probably counterintuitive for many who assume that engineering is all about quantification and precision, it's in context marked by uncertainty and ambiguity that engineers rise to the occasion, that an engineering approach to solving problems, um, its power really becomes apparent. Now, of course, you might be thinking engineers aren't alone in this regard. We could make a similar observation about activists and artists, entrepreneurs, <clears throat> or anyone whose reach exceeds their grasp when trying to affect the world in some way. Creators and change makers of many kinds share a confidence that they can in fact make something happen because they've actually ex experienced the feeling of making something happen, even if small. They've built something. They've actually changed something. In my experience, students in every field of study are relishing opportunities to get a taste of this. Let me try another tack to um, convey what I mean when I say we could all use more gumption by pointing to a recent book by, called Generous Thinking by Kathleen Fitzpatrick, a professor of English at Michigan State. As, as Fitzpatrick summarizes in her preface, quote, the central argument of this book begins from the growing sense that the critical thinking that forms the center of higher education today has somehow fallen out of whack and that it has come to be seen as privileging the negation rather than the creation of ideas and institutions. Fitzpatrick goes on to say that, quote, the problem with this critical mode is not that its insights aren't correct, nor that the structures of contemporary culture don't require critique, but rather that the critique has become less a means of paving the way toward a better alternative than an end in itself. So Fitzpatrick has a, has a really big agenda here. Um, after all, her book's subtitle is A Radical Approach to Saving the University. Yet I think her argument that, that the expertise and critique nurtured so well by disciplines like the social sciences and humanities also comes with limitations, aligns with my insistence that the spirited initiative and resourcefulness to create and change things found in a discipline like engineering has something to offer to all of us. I agree with Fitzpatrick that students need to be prepared to read both with and against the grain. In addition to mastering what Peter Elbow aptly calls the doubting game, learning how to interrogate, unpack, demystify, and subvert, they need to prepare how to play the believing game, learning how to pay attention, to create, to listen, and to act. So as I've already noted, there are lots of other disciplines that foster this creative posture beyond engineering, nurturing critical doers as well as critical thinkers. And there are lots of lessons that engineering clearly needs to learn about developing um, the spirit of what Fitzpatrick has called generous thinking. 
we all need, I think, um, to work at cultivating this disposition. In 2019, the Center for Peace Advancement at Grable launched a peace tech living learning community in our residence program. The aim of Peace Tech was to create a space for students in any program or year of study to explore opportunities at the intersection of peace building and technology. And from the outset, this has included both critical thinking and creative exploration. An engineering student can run a workshop on trying to explain AI to non-engineers, while a peace and conflict studies student can facilitate a conversation about the contributions of social media to political polarization. Interdisciplinary teams have formed in this community to enter extracurricular pitch competitions. I really like how Emma Kirk, a Peace Tech peer leader who is studying environment resources and sustainability, summed up the impact of this community in a recent article. Quote, I believe that this is a unique and valuable experience because it leaves each of us with the self-assuredness to not only engage critically, but to explore creatively beyond our disciplines. So I'll conclude the second part of my presentation here with an example of this can-do posture of engineering that comes from what may seem like an unlikely context. It's an initiative called Tech Stewardship that is seeking to transform the culture of the engineering profession in Canada, a bold objective, and along the way to shift the way engineering relates to other fields concerned with the impact technology on society. So Tech Stewardship was sparked by a program of Engineers Without Borders Canada called the Engineering Change Lab, which starting in 2015 organized a series of multi-stakeholder workshops to unlock the full potential of the engineering community to contribute to society. From these modest beginnings, um, the Tech Stewardship Practice Program has been developed to inculcate a new professional identity, orientation, and practice, reframing engineering as tech stewardship, reframing engineers as tech stewards. Participants discuss, refine, and imagine new ways to shape technology for the benefit of all, of all by holding to some shared priorities. Priorities like the fact that first tech stewards are purposeful, since technology is not neutral. They imagine, design, and implement technology intentionally for positive impact. Tech stewards are responsible, since the pace of technological disruption is accelerating. They anticipate monitor and manage complex impacts of tech. Third, tech stewards are inclusive, continuously asking who is driving tech and who is missing. They expand on what is being considered and involved in decision making. And the fourth priority, tech stewards are regenerative since technology is too often extractive. They proceed in a manner that cares for the environment, economy, communities, and individuals. As Mark Abbott, the founder of the Engineering Change Lab, likes to put it, these priorities can be summed up as shifting the focus in the development of technology from the question, can we do it, to should we do it? Contributors to this effort have included not only engineering educators and practitioners, but social sciences and humanities scholars, as well as the civil society and indigenous leaders. Given the tone of what I shared briefly here, that probably isn't surprising. What is surprising is the growing level of support for tech stewardship as a model for the engineer from less likely quarters. It's now been endorsed by the largest professional engineering association in Canada, from the deans of all the major engineering schools in Canada, including Waterloo. 
and key industry leaders, and the program is now being adapted and delivered in all three of these contexts. Who would have thought? Given my own experience decades ago as an engineering student at Waterloo, not to mention my current role at Grable, I've developed a well-practiced and at times cynical critique of a typical engineering curriculum. But I'm genuinely excited about tech stewardship. Of course, it's far from adequate for all the challenges evident in the culture and practice of engineering. And it's far from adequate for all the challenges posed by technology. But it's a surprising op um, example of the possibility for change for those of us in other corners of the academy. Indeed, as it was pointed out last year by Alex Usher, a prominent consultant and thought leader in the Canadian higher education sector, engineering programs are starting to demonstrate the same kind of initiative they bring to solving problems in the world to the education of engineers. Usher wrote, to a large extent what we see in other fields are new combinations of programming, that is, new that is attempts to cover new ground by bringing together insights across multiple fields of study. What we are seeing in engineering, however, is something different, a deeper and more fundamental interrogation of how a field's practices can be brought up to date. This, emphatically, is not something that is evident across the academy at the moment, and one is tempted to ask why. Might other fields benefit from some deep introspection and redesign? Okay, third contribution. Problem solving isn't everything. Of course, there are lots of other efforts to examine and redesign the practice of engineering education in addition to the tech stewardship initiative. Lots of good ones in the US. Um, I, um, one of time to, to illustrate them, but I'm happy to, to chat afterwards about some of these, these efforts, including uh, a new peace engineering consortium. Who would have thought? Fair enough, you might be thinking, but aren't there limitations to the focus on problem solving that these initiatives encourage? Aren't universities overly contorting ourselves to claim that our relevance depends on the extent to which we can solve the world's problems? Fair point. In this concluding section, I will briefly argue that even if we set aside this contemporary preoccupation with problem solving in higher education, the texture and the richness of a liberal arts university can be helpfully enhanced by engineering um, because when properly understood, the engineering method had, has points of resonance with subjects far beyond STEM. And so what I'm gonna do here is, is very briefly, um, and not do justice to it, but try and sketch an enriched understanding of the practice of engineering based on what I see as a loose consensus among a wide range of more philosophically minded engineers. Um, kind of get under the hood of what engineering is with you. And, um, and again, just to let you know in advance, I'll be engaging with literature here more than with direct experiences. The crucial point I want to make about the practice of engineering is that while it's often preoccupied with effectiveness, and thus this characterization by many of engineering um, as problem solving, effectiveness is competing in engineering with other important preoccupations. I'm relying here on a pragmatic yet highly developed definition of engineering provided by the nuclear engineer Billy Von Cohen, who defines the engineering method as the strategy for causing the best change in a poorly understood situation within the available resources. A strategy for causing the best change in a poorly understood situation within the available resources. His landmark book unpacks this. Um, 
and demonstrates that there's a, there's a challenge, of course, in fleshing out just what a strategy is to do it. There's more that needs to be said. Cohen argues that engineers use heuristics as their strategy for achieving the best change in a poorly understood situation. A heuristic is anything that provides a plausible aid or direction in the solution of a problem, but is in the final analysis unjustified, incapable of justification, and potentially fallible. And so to put it more simply, he tells us that engineering is really, quote, an ad hoc method of doing the best you can with what you've got. The several dozen engineering heuristics discussed by Cohen in his book include rules of thumb for specific applications and others with more broad relevance. Examples include, at some point in a project, freeze your design. And solve problems by successive approximations. And work at the margins of a solvable problem. His main concern is to emphasize that while engineers will use whatever works to solve a problem, they also implicitly recognize the fallibility of their strategy. They're interminable doubters when it comes to assuming that a particular strategy is true for all times and places. Every problem, oh sorry, thus engineers have no, no illusions about mastering the natural world or possessing solutions to every problem, much less about controlling history. And for all his efforts to clarify what he means by heuristics, Cohen in his book only serves to highlight the complexity and messiness of engineering. Almost every heuristic requires an engineer to make significant judgments. They still have to determine when to freeze a design. They still have to determine which approximations are appropriate, and they still have to determine where the margins of a solvable problem can be found. Most importantly, engineering designs are always being evaluated according to a moving target. The best practices in engineering, or as Cohen likes to call them, the state of the art, is always and forever in flux. So for all the effort that engineers expend trying to develop and propagate these best practices as evident in libraries full of design handbooks, engineers are only ever necessary to the extent that ambiguity and uncertain are present in the design process. Once the way of solving that problem is clear, you don't need an engineer anymore. What then can be said about what happens on the margins of problem solving addressed by an engineer? How are engineering judgments? What can be said beyond the insistence that engineering design is not purely objective? It's not a purely rational process. And here's where I, um, again, would summarize thinking from a variety of, of reflective um, engineers as well as historians of technology, like Eugene Peterson, who points out that successful design requires stores of expert tacit knowledge and intuitive feel of experience more than theory. He writes, no matter how vigorously a science of design may be pushed, the successful design of real things in a contingent world will always be based more on art than science. Unquantifiable judgments and choices are the elements that determine the way a design comes together. Underlying this point, the civil engineer Samuel Florman has argued that, quote, Engineers agree that intuition, practical experience, and artistic sensibility are at least as important to their work as the application of scientific theory. He insists that, quote, although engineering is serious and methodical, it contains elements of spontaneity. Engineering is an art as well as a science, and good engineering depends upon leaps of imagination 
as well as painstaking care. These references to the artistic dimension of engineering design provide further clues to the kinds of things that influence engineering judgments in the midst of those leaps of imagination. And one obvious example is emotion. As Florman puts it, the fact that engineers are inarticulate, pause for a chuckle, does not signify that engineering does not evoke strong emotions. He goes on to say that analysis, rationality, materialism, and practical creativity do not preclude emotional fulfillment. They are pathways to such fulfillment. They do not reduce experience. They expand it. And there are lots of other characterizations of the impulse that makes engineering pleasurable for those who practice it. Notions of technological virtu virtuosity, technological exuberance, and others have written about technological enthusiasm. Of course, the emotional side of engineering is also revealed by the fact that for the most part, it's a collective, it's a social, not an individual pursuit. And so engineers are forever grappling, not only with constraints imposed by the natural world, but composed by people and personality. In addition to emotion, another significant influence on engineering judgment is aesthetics. Cyril Stanley Smith is a renowned metallurgist and historian of science, and he argued that, quote, order per se is not art, and neither is complexity, but the finding of order in complexity is. He goes on to suggest that it's obvious that engineers have always had a rich and valid aesthetic experience in building their structures and devising their machines. For example, the strength of steel and concrete and the beauty of a streamlined surface are proper aesthetic experiences in today's world. And they become more so as artists have explored their meaning. Echoing Smith, David Billington uses the work of the Swiss bridge designer Robert Maillard to emphasize that, quote, engineering form is the result of human imagination, not simply rational choice. Thus, the essence of the artist as engineer does not lie in his or her need to deny the analytical side of structural engineering, but to see calculation as merely means. Brad Kallenberg has picked up on this point, suggesting that the arts and engineering actually have much in common because both require skills in seeing. Kallenberg is a Christian ethicist who's taught engineering ethics at the University of Dayton for, for several decades. And uh, I'd highly recommend his book, By Design. Not only if you're interested in engineering ethics, but if you're interested in learning something about ethics, actually. Kallenberg thinks that the tacit skills that go into, for example, reading a complex mechanism, the ability to see simply and plainly what others must work to interpret, demonstrates that engineers have a highly developed capacity for other tacit skills including ethical discernment. Furthermore, Kallenberg agrees with Eugene Ferguson that an engineer's tacit or embodied knowledge is both chronologically and logically prior to theoretical reasoning. And so when a practice such as engineering is on its cutting edge, theoretical explanations of a good design will always follow rather than precede the design. All right, like I said, that was a, a race through a particular vision of what engineering really is, but hopefully um, gives you a, maybe a different kind of um, image than you might have had. And some of the engineers in the room might want to push back on that. 
So let me sum up and then happy to um, open things up to questions. I've been trying to convey several contributions that engineers can make, engineering can make to a liberal arts university, several reasons why it's relevant for all of us, regardless of our area of, of expertise. First, engineering can nurture a deeper sense of understanding of the nuances and complexities of the technologies that shape our world, because the way things work really does matter. Second, engineering can provide inspiration for change making and new opportunities for interdisciplinary collaboration because we could all use more gumption in tackling problems that really matter. And third, a deeper exploration of engineering, understood as a practice marked by heuristics and tacit skills that's more akin to artistry than a straightforward application of science or theoretical reasoning. This deeper exploration can uncover all kinds of points of connection and conversation with disciplines far beyond those in STEM. So thanks again for the opportunity to, to talk with you, to share some of this with you today, and, and like I said, hopefully we can, I can stimulate some, some thoughts and conversation. And I think um, we're gonna pass the mic around. Thanks, Rhonda. Yeah, so raise your hand if you've got a question. I'll be glad to bring the mic to you. So thank you, Paul. Just to start things off, um, I'm quite taken with the vision of peace tech. But at least in this country, uh, war tech is what gets all the funding. So I'm, I'm wondering, and things are different in Canada, I realize, but I'm wondering what the resource base is to expand this vision of, of peace tech. Uh, where, where will the funding come from to, to push this forward? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. It's David, right? Yes. Yeah, good to, good to see you again. Um, well, maybe just I'll say two things in response to that question. First, um, one thing I didn't have time to get into, um, I talked about kind of the lack of interest or take up, generally speaking, that I've encountered among non-technical people in this agenda around, around peace tech with some exceptions. I think there are some really exciting things happening on a broader, in a broader scale when it comes to peace tech within peace building networks, both in North America and globally. So, um, last fall, I was at the first global peace tech consultation that was organized by the European University Institute in Florence. Um, a really great collection of, 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 uh, of peace builders, of, of tech professionals, and a mix of people asking questions like this, like how do we advance this agenda in a sustained and uh, not just a tokenistic kind of way. And there are interesting outgrowths of that, other things happening. So I'll be, um, Lisa Shirk is, is part of a group that's convening a conversation around social cohesion and social media that I'll be participating in in, in San Francisco next month. Um, there's a lot going on. Like I think Peace Tech is on the move in, in some really interesting ways in, the, in this larger context. At the same time, like your question is really, that's the, the burning question for me. Um, conceptually, organizations can recognize, again, both sides, right, that technology is now a driver of, or at least a contributor in significant ways to conflict. And likewise, there are very real um, 
and discrete technical challenges and opportunities that could help um, accelerate the impact of a variety of peace building initiatives, right? Like tech matters, and, and again, in that context, people are, I think, starting to get it. But, but the question is, how do you like operationalize that good intention and, and this goodwill that's starting to, starting to build? Next month, I'm also going to Cambodia to do a post-mortem on a really interesting peace tech venture that we supported in Grable's Peace Incubator, um, a group of engineering students that morphed into a tech startup using robotic technology to accelerate the excavation of landmines in Cambodia. A great story. They, 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 they busted their butts <laughs> for years. We raised a lot of capital to help support that initiative for several years in order to develop technology that actually works, field tested, ready to go. Um, governments and organizations are not simply in the position at this point of understanding the investment that's required to sustain that kind of, of technology that could make a really meaningful, demonstrable impact on the, on the ground. Um, because it's a whole different world, right? Developing robotic technology is, uh, is not something that NGOs know how to do um, or, or have experience doing. So lots of work to be done, but again, I see a lot of, a lot of promise. And, and again, where I stand, this high level like marshalling of interest and enthusiasm for the opportunity is, is growing at the same time among students, a growing level of interest and engagement in our peace tech initiatives at, at Waterloo. And so I feel like, you know, We've got good things happening on the demand and the supply side. Now we just have to have to make the connections. Um, first off, I, this, this is fascinating. I'm glad you're bringing this to the fore. It's really, really important on both sides of the, the juncture, as you, you put it. I'm wondering, um, in regard to technology and tech, if you've um, wrestled with um, some of the kind of uh, work that's, that, that was started back in the early 50s and 60s and then kind of rever reverberated forward with uh, Jacques Ellul and te technological society and kind of almost the ontology of, of technique. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, kind of, um, you know, the critical thinker um, Habermas also said there's different knowledge interests depending upon if you're empirical, analytical, or you're in hermeneutical. And I don't think that causes any problem with what you're putting forward, but it, it complicates things um, in some sense, in exciting ways, but things that, um, you know, it's not all, all knowledge interests, Habermas says, are not the same. So just your comments on some of that? Yeah. Um, so again, maybe the, the best way to respond, I mean, I, I, I do think, um, the analysis of people like Jacques Ellul continues to be relevant, maybe more relevant than ever. Uh, in fact, interest in Ellul's thought, maybe not surprisingly, given issues emerging and becoming higher profile around technology is, is, has only been growing in, in, in recent years. I think here I would, I'd, I'd be in the camp of Alan Jacobs, um, who recently um, talked about like the profound power and the cogency of the critique of technology that People like Elul, um, he clusters Elul, um, Neil Postman, who I mentioned, um, Albert Borgman, Ivan Illich. Um, there's, a, there's a whole cluster of these like second half 20th century critics of technology, philosophers, social scientists, um, who really have profound things to say that we're discovering is all the more relevant <laughs> decades later in some cases since they've, they've moved on. But um, so this, this critique is really profound, but Jacobs really wrote, recently wrote an article in which he said um, 
So the standard critique of technology is right, but nothing has changed. What do we do with that? And I think that's where, where I put, um, as much as I think that critique is, is, again, it's cogent, it's correct, it's useful, um, it's not had the impact we'd like to think it would have. The ideas alone aren't enough, right? What we need, again, is not only a critical mode, but now an engagement mode. So now, now that this is our assessment of technological society, now what? Then what, right? Um, and that's where the thinkers can only get us so far. I think we need, we need the doers to pick up the, pick up the baton. And that's where, again, it's so striking to me when you look at the, you know, the resources that lie behind the tech stewardship initiative. Who would have thought, like again, professional engineers reading Jacques Ellul, talking about the device paradigm that Albert Borgman coined. Uh, coined. Um, it's, it's all over it. So again, it's not to dismiss or diminish those contributions. I mean, it's critical insights. And now it's great to see how that might inform new practices, new ways of organizing and thinking about how we engage in a technological society too. Thanks so much. Um, it's, it's great to have you here uh, uh, from, from Waterloo. Um, I hired this guy back in 2014, and it's just uh, terrific to see uh, you doing well. I'm just wondering, too, uh, if you could share with us how your Anabaptist faith and how your training in theology mm. also informs this peacemaking and engineering connection. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Susan, and thanks. Yeah, um, great to have the chance to connect with you again. Um, I really need to like mull that over a little bit more. I mean, it's, so it's quite striking, like when I first got to Waterloo, um, to see the extent to which this vibrant innovation ecosystem with tech startups popping up here, there, and everywhere, you, you, you might recall, um, you know, the former president of the University of Waterloo and subsequent governor general um, of Canada, David Johnston, talked about the barn-raising spirit of Waterloo as a defining feature of the community. And so he used this, drew on this metaphor from these surrounding old order communities that he was quite taken with and struck with um, in order to describe the collaborative spirit that really fueled the get it done gumption in, in, you know, in, in the community. And, and to be honest, like I, you know, it's just interesting to observe as a Mennonite to then go to you know, tech conferences and meet people who are part of, you know, there, there's a major venture capital fund called the Barn Raisers um, to see, um, in fact, like, like photographic and, and, and painted depictions of barn raising, barn raisings are like one of the most popular pieces of art you can find in a tech company in, in, in Waterloo, right? So this sense of uh, like, which is, you know, a wonderful legacy or, or impression to, to be drawing on. But for me, the, the prodding was, okay, and, and then what, right? Like what are the other facets of of this heritage that need to find ways of informing how we're approaching this in our community, including, you know, this deep tradition of, of, of peace building. Um, yeah, and I, and I, I guess, um, it, you know, it, it's striking to me how I think Grable and the, and the Grable Peace Incubator has provided a, um, a home for entrepreneurs and innovators who are often compelled and deeply committed people of faith. Um, interestingly, most of them are non-Christian. And I've sometimes struggled to, to know what to do with that because to be honest, I, I think I've had an easier time having conversations with participants in our center who are coming from other faith traditions who are asking me about my faith, who are 
processing questions that have emerged out of their own, out of their own traditions. I've had more of those conversations than I've had with, with, with Mennonites and Anabaptists, um, interestingly. So maybe some work, work to be done to kind of draw that in in more intentional ways within, within our community um, and some opportunities there. Um, but it is striking how, uh, maybe, maybe it's not surprising, right, but that social entrepreneurs are not uncommonly deeply motivated and driven um, not just by a generic desire to do good, but by, by deep religious commitments and supports of, of faith communities of all kinds. Yeah, yeah, definitely more work to be done there, though. I think we have time for maybe one more. None of the engineers want to push back on my painting of engineering. Let's get the let's get the, the mic, Esther. Sorry to put you on the spot, but I'd be happy. I like the way you put it in, in the engineering with art. Uh, when some of the students are here, uh, they are in my the, the, the perhaps the, the the most difficult class in engineering is control theory, uh, control systems. Uh, where towards the second half to the end of it, it's really getting to the art, not really engineer anymore. So I will use this phrase, are we still in Kansas? Maybe not, uh, Fred. <laughs> We're not in Kansas anymore. Um, yeah, art is, engineering is art. Thank you. Last call.